You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. and I am a professor of philosophy at the University of Dallas. And today I'm speaking on contraception, which is the fifth in a series of talks on sexual ethics. And I have a few texts here that I'd like to refer you to. You might want to refer to at some point if you're studying this issue. These are several documents written by the Catholic Church that deal with the question of contraception and marriage. The first one's an early one on Christian marriage, Caustic Nubii. That was written by Pope Pius XI in 1930. And then we have a document from Vatican II on the role of the church in the modern world, or Gaudium et Spes. Very small section, sections 48 through 51, cover sexuality and contraception. The most pivotal document is the document on human life, or Humanae Vitae, which was written in 1968. And then in 1981, we have the document on the role of the Christian family, and that's Familiaris Consortio. And then there's a new one out, I don't have listed up here, by John Paul II, Evangelium Vitae. It just came out this year, a marvelous document that traces the connection between contraception and abortion and other abuses against life in the modern world. I'll talk a lot about that during my talk. There's also a series of talks by Pope John Paul II. These are Wednesday afternoon talks that he gave that have been put together in collections. Uh, one's the original unity of man and woman, blessed are the pure in heart, and marriage and celibacy and then Reflections on Humanae Vitae. Now this is where he lays out his theology of the body, and these are very theological works, unlike the presentation I'm going to give today, which is largely, again, philosophical. I myself have written a work on Humanae Vitae called Humanae Vitae, A Generation Later. This came out in 1991, and I trace in that book the whole history of the Church's teaching on contraception and marriage, the natural law arguments against contraception. I examine the arguments of those who dissent against the Church's teaching, and I review John Paul II's teaching on Humanae Vitae. And then in 1993, I put together a collection of essays on Humanae Vitae and contraception. A larger number of authors, probably as many as 15 different authors, contributed to that volume of works that were written both before and after Humanae Vitae was issued that I think people should consult that might be a little bit out of the way. So there's a lot of text in this. I'm only scratching the surface here, but just to give you a sense of it. My book is fairly academic. John Kipley covers much of the same material in much more popular fashion in a text called Sex and the Marriage Covenant, A Basis for Morality. I highly recommend that text as an introduction to this issue. The book Contraception by John Noonan that came out in 1986, that's a revised edition of an earlier text, is a book that argues that the church could and should change its teaching on contraception. I disagree with that, but the reason I recommend the book is because it gives a wonderful history of the church's teaching on sexual matters really from day one. And in that book, he argues that the church at least has had a constant, unbroken tradition of teaching that contraception is immoral. I list three articles here by a man named Robert T. Michael. And Professor Michael has examined the relationship between the use of contraception and divorce. And I make some use of his articles, and people are often wanting to find the sources, so I included that here, so anyone who's interested might quickly jot down the sources. The one that we might want to look at particularly is the third one, why did the U.S. divorce rate double within a decade? I'll make reference to that again as we go along. 
And then finally, if you don't have any of these texts, I'm hoping you already have on your wall one of the best sellers, the Universal Catechism, which again does a nice job of providing an introduction to this issue. Now, as you most likely know, contraception is one of the most controversial topics within the Catholic Church. People can't understand, both those within the Church and those outside the Church, why the Church won't change its teaching on contraception. Those who even respect John Paul II for his teaching on social ethics are very disappointed in his teaching on sexual ethics, and by that they largely mean his teaching on contraception. I'll be making many references to John Paul II in this talk because he's done some wonderful thinking on this issue and teaching on this issue. But we must admit that he doesn't claim that this is a personal teaching of his. He thinks he can't change this teaching, that again, this is God's law and not man's law. And in fact, it's the natural law. It's in accord with what is written into our very bodies, what is written into our very makeup, what is written into our very being. And if we use contraception, we are violating somehow the very goods of sexuality that we're trying to achieve through an act of sexual intercourse. Now, it surprises many to learn that all churches were opposed to contraception up until about 1931. It was in 1931 that the Anglican Church at the Lambeth Conference first broke with the unbroken tradition of all Christian churches as being against contraception. And it wasn't really until the early 1960s that even in the Catholic Church that there was any dissent on this issue. Theologians, Catholic lay people were living in accord with the church's teaching and accepted the church's teaching. In 1960, they say some 66% of Catholics were living by the church's teaching. Now they say that 80% of the fertile populace at large at any moment is contracepting and that Catholics contracept at the rate of the rest of the population. They say perhaps only 4% or so of Catholics use natural family planning. So it's an interesting question to try to figure out why there was this huge shift between 1960 and the 1990s, 30-year period. Did we go from 66 compliance with the church's teaching on contraception to about 80% non-compliance with the church's teaching? Well, there's many reasons for this. The contraceptive pill became available really for the first time in the early 1960s. Right up to that point, there was no such thing as the pill. There was the diaphragm, there was the condom, but there weren't really very many forms of contraception. So it wasn't much of an option, really, until the early 1960s. Now, the coming of the contraceptive pill coincided with a number of things that were very important for causing an interest in the use of contraception. First of all, as I said, was its availability. Simply up until the 1960s, there was no such thing as contraception that was available. But also, there was what, and it still remains the case, a perceived population problem. Paul Ehrlich wrote his The Population Bomb in the 1960s. And when I was in high school, we had these great big pictures of so many people on the globe that bodies were actually falling off the globe. And with a recent conference in Cairo, Again, as a public, we were inundated with information about a perceived population problem. I have real questions about whether there really is a population problem that's global. I can understand that some parts of the Earth might be having some difficulty keeping up and providing for their population growth. But there's a worldwide population problem. The best demographers and the best economists question, not that there aren't good economists and not very many economists, but demographers who believe there is a population problem, there are many who don't. I presently live in the great state of Texas, and it interests many people to know that the whole world's population, all 5.6 billion people in the United States, could fit in the state of Texas, every single one. And every single individual would have 1,500 square feet of room, all right? 
That's about as big as my house is in Texas. Now, if a few of us lived together or built a high-rise, we'd have a room for a small garden plot around and might even be able to support ourselves. But as it is, if we even just went in and took our 1,500 square feet, we'd have the rest of the globe for supplying our needs. There's many different ways of talking about the population problem, if there is one. But the big question is whether contraception is the best way to go about solving it. In a certain sense, there's a reverse population problem in Western Europe. There is no country in Western Europe that is replacing itself. Every country in Western Europe is below replacement rate for its population. Italy, for instance, I think is now 1.3, and you need 2.2 children per household in order to reproduce your population. It's causing many problems in Western Germany with immigration of people who will take the lower income jobs, and there's all sorts of different kinds of problems now in some countries that have actually a birth rate that is not reproducing itself. Mid-next century, there may be very few Swedes on the face of the earth. They have now hit a declining population. So it's simplistic to say that there are simply too many people on the face of the earth. But certainly in the 1960s, the prediction was that right now we'd have people fighting wars because of problems with starvation because there's too many people. Uh, no one's ever been proven more wrong than Paul Ehrlich. None of his predictions have come even close to being true. But anyway, in the 60s, it was believed that we had to have something such as a contraception, as it's believed now, that contraception is one of the greatest things that has happened to mankind. It's one of the salvations of the world. Even if you ask most modern people in the United States if they, you know, if they wanted to give up their car or their VCR or their computer or their contraceptive, it'd be a hard choice on which one they would give up. So you have this curious church that says that not only is it not a good thing, but that it's a bad thing. Now this coincided, or maybe even caused, you might say, the sexual revolution. In the 1960s, there was a rapid increase in the amount of sexual activity outside of marriage before marriage and also extramarital sex adultery. The pill, contraceptive pill, made that incredibly possible, as it also made possible, in a certain sense, the rise of feminism. The notion that women shouldn't be bound to the household, shouldn't be barefoot pregnant in the kitchen, but should be out in the workplace fulfilling themselves and actualizing their potential in the workplace. So the pill became very important for that, because obviously if women were having a large number of children, they wouldn't be able to pursue their careers. There was also, of course, the expectation that there would be much better marriages if contraception became widely available, that you would have much greater spontaneous, free, worry-free sex within marriage, that you would have couples who were no longer crippled by the anxiety of pregnancy, they wouldn't have to practice rhythm, they could have sex throughout the month, no expectation of a baby, and obviously a much better sexual life, better marriage. And also, of course, people could have sex before marriage and find themselves a suitable sexual partner, so not rushing into marriage because of the desire for sex. I should have put a fifth reason provoking reconsideration. One is that people thought, again, with contraception, that there would be many fewer unwanted pregnancies and many fewer abortions. That clearly, if women were using contraceptives, they wouldn't get pregnant when they didn't want to, and then they wouldn't be driven to have a baby outside of wedlock, or they wouldn't be driven to have an abortion. Now, maybe as you're listening to this, you might be thinking, my goodness, did any of those things come true? Right? I hope you're thinking that. Because in Humanae Vitae, in section 17, the author of that document, Pope Paul VI, he claims, he sort of prophesies, that there will be four disastrous sort of things that happen should contraception become widely available. And one thing he said is that there would be a general lowering of morality. It's a curious thing. If contraception becomes widely available, there will be a general lowering of morality. But I would just ask people to think about that. 
has there been a general lowering of morality between the 1950s, 1960s, and today? And I think that's inescapably obvious <laughs> that there has been. I need to only cite perhaps one example, the TV. When I was a teenager in the 60s, I mean, we saw Leave it to Beaver and I Love Lucy and all sorts of incredibly innocent shows. And now we have MTV and daytime sex operas, pornography, virtually pornography on TV. It's incredible indices of the sort of corruption there have been in public morals since the 1960s. I often call it the frog in the water effect. When you put a frog in boiling water, evidently it jumps out. But if you put a frog in lukewarm water and just slowly raise the temperature, it's very comfortable. And I think that's where we are as a culture. If MTV and daytime soap operas had appeared on TV in the early 60s, my father and every other father on the street would have taken their TVs out and smashed them on the concrete. But now we just sit in our living room and switch channels and watch pornography from one channel to another. So I think we could say it's true. Pope Paul VI was right. There has been a general lowering of morality between the 1960s and the 1990s. You don't need to mention crime, gangs, drug abuse. You might say, well, how can you trace any of that to the use of contraception? Well, I'll do that in a minute. I just want to suggest that, as a matter of fact, the prediction was right. He also said there would be a decline in respect of males for females, that men would disrespect women, both physically and psychologically. And again, I would say that's happened. I would say that women are much more sex objects now than they were then, that there's much more pornography, there's much more abuse of women, physical, sexual abuse of women, women abandoned, many more single women without husbands to support them, single women with children, women abandoned by divorce, a certain disrespect for women, which I think is fairly rampant. He also said that there would be a growth of government oppression, that the government would do things that would be violative of reproductive freedoms. And we can certainly see that. We see that with the UN, we saw it with Cairo. We see it in China. China now has forced abortions. It's a one family, one baby policy. If you get pregnant a second time, you may be forcibly aborted, dragged into a clinic and actually forced to have an abortion. We saw this with the UN in Cairo. Those coming to the conference from the Western world wanted to tie all financial aid to poor countries to aggressive population programs, telling these countries basically, we won't give you any money for food or for health care or for development unless you push contraceptives on your people. There's been no country in which there has come an aggressive population program in which there hasn't been a coercion of women for using contraception. So I think we could say that that prediction has come true. The final prediction that he made was that we would begin to treat our bodies like machines, that we would tamper with our bodies. And again, I think we can see that with our use of reproductive technologies, that we hope to make a baby that will be a perfect baby. We want to design babies that we want to have. We want our bodies to be just like we want them to be. We want 65-year-old women now. If they want to have babies, we will help them have a baby through in vitro fertilization. So we're now working in a culture in which the predictions that Paul VI made about Humanae Vitae have come true. There's been a general lowering of morality. There's increased disrespect for women. Governments have used contraception in a coercive fashion and we have now begun to treat our bodies as machines. Now that we've looked at the predictions that Paul VI made about what would happen if contraception became widely available, I'd like to return to the few things we were talking about as 
reasons for provoking the reconsideration of the church's teaching or reasons why contraception became widely available. I'd like to look at a few of those points that I made earlier. There was the expectation that there would be better marriages if contraception became widely available. And I had put up earlier some studies by a scholar named Robert Michael. And he was curious why the divorce rate doubled between 1965 and 1975. In 1965, some 25% of marriages ended in divorce. By 1975, some 50% of marriages ended in divorce, and that has continued through about the last 20 years, maybe rising a little bit. And the question is, why did it double in a 10-year period? What happened in that 10-year period to make the divorce rate double? Now, what he discovered was that contraception played a major role in that doubling, I think probably even a larger role than his speculations led him to determine. But he claimed there were three reasons why contraception contributed to the divorce rate. Again, I think there's more than he accounts for. One, he said, there's studies show that if you have one baby in the first two years of marriage, your marriage is likely to last a lot longer than if you don't. And if you have another baby in the next two years of marriage, or two babies in the first four years of marriage, statistically, your marriage is likely to last a lot longer than if you don't. Well, I'd just like you to think about why would it be that those who have babies early on in a marriage are likely to have longer lasting marriages. This goes back to something we've been talking about in the last several class periods, about how important procreation is to a marriage, how much of a bonding experience really having babies is. And I can see this often when I see people get married. You often think it's going to be this sort of nonstop honeymoon. They're hoping for that, and you think they're going to have that. It's going to be unrelenting bliss. And then you notice that for many couples, not all couples, but many couples, there's a lot of fighting that goes on in that first year or two years of marriage. You have two personalities, two wills under the same roof, and it's hard to get them on the same page. So I've seen people fight, fight so badly that one gets in the car and goes out for a drive and wonders if he's ever going to come back or she's ever going to come back. But the point is, if you have a baby in that house, you're much more likely to come back because there's two people you love there, one you're really mad at and one you can't wait to see their smiles in the morning. So you get back to that house. If there's two babies in the house, there's three people you love, okay? One you're very mad at, but two who you really can't imagine not seeing. So you work a lot out in a marriage. And you also have something to fascinate you, charm you, amuse you, test you, challenge you with children. So I think children can be an incredibly bonding force in marriage. Now everybody knows marriages that have had six children, eight children, and ended in divorce after 25 years. But those are rare. And there's a reason that that's rare. It's a reason it shocks us. I mean, that shocks us because we don't think it's going to happen. We think, my goodness, if they've had that kind of experience together, you would expect that relationship to hold. And we're right to expect that when it doesn't happen we are shocked. Mr. Michael also says that whenever there's greater use of contraception within marriage and in our culture, there's a much greater incident of adultery. And again, that adultery is absolutely devastating to marriages. Again, it's pretty clear why that would be the case. Right? Obviously, there's more adultery because more women are using the pill. Therefore, women in a certain sense are more available than they were in the past. And so a man might look at a woman, and in years past he might have said, no way, I can't think about this. But now he thinks, well, she's probably using a contraceptive. It becomes thinkable that one would commit adultery. And again, adultery is devastating to marriages. I also think that since so many couples have had sex before they've gotten married, and some have become accustomed to multiple sexual partners, they don't really see any particular reason to stop that after they get married. They've been used to, again, multiple sexual partners before marriage, and when they get married, one person won't satisfy all their little appetites. Another point he makes is that women are having fewer children. And since they're having fewer children, they're more financially independent. And since they're financially independent, again, when difficulties arise in the marriage, they are no longer 
forced by economic necessity to work things out, but they can tell him to take a hike because now they can support themselves. So those are his three reasons that he gives for a connection between increased use of contraception and divorce. I think there's other reasons that he doesn't speculate about. As I go on, I'll talk more about it, but here I would just like to offer that I think that the sexual intercourse that people have before marriage is often very damaging to marriages for several reasons. I think that, again, people get hurt often by having sexual intercourse before they get married, and they don't trust themselves or trust other people as much. They're not as convinced that they can keep a commitment or that anybody else can keep a commitment in the same way. They've, in a certain sense, already been unfaithful to their future spouse. And I think that some people just slide into marriage because of sexual intercourse. They start having sex together. They start living together. They haven't really made a judgment about whether or not this individual is the best person for them to be married to. They haven't really made a decision that they have values in common, that they really can build a lifetime union together. They began having sex because the chemistry was right, the circumstances were right, and now they find themselves two or three years having lived together and it's about time to get married. And again, all the studies show that those who have cohabitated before marriage, those who have lived together before marriage, are more likely to get divorced than those who have not. And I think there's good reasons for that. There's a huge difference between pretending to be married and being married. It's not a practice marriage. It's an entirely different situation. When one gets married, there's a whole new set of expectations, a whole new behavior pattern that one has to become accustomed to. Now, I also mentioned that people thought that when the contraceptive pill became widely available, there would be many fewer unwanted pregnancies and many fewer abortions. Well, we certainly have seen that that's false. In 1960, some 6% of white babies were born out of wedlock and 22% of black babies were born out of wedlock. In 1994, some 22% of white babies were born out of wedlock, and 68% of black babies were born out of wedlock. In the aggregate, that means that some 30% of babies in the United States are born to a woman who is not married. That's incredible. Now, in 1960, when it was very difficult to get a contraceptive, only 6% of whites and 22% of blacks were born out of wedlock. In 1994, when you can get a contraceptive in your welcome-to-school kit, okay, you now have 30% of babies in an aggregate being born out of wedlock. Clearly, contraception has not reduced the number of unwanted pregnancies, and I would like to make the claim that it has manifestly increased the number of unwanted pregnancies. Abortion was virtually unheard of in the 1960s, early 1960s, and now we have a million and a half abortions a year. And people tell us that more and better in contraceptives will reduce these phenomena, but I think it goes absolutely against the evidence and goes against common sense. I think contraception has enabled people to have sexual relationships that aren't ordained to marriage, that aren't obviously within marriage. In fact, it's become a kind of a wisdom to have sex before marriage. I mean, this is the wisdom we had when I was a teenager in the 60s. You sort of make this argument, well, you wouldn't buy a car without taking it for a test drive. And obviously, you wouldn't buy a car without taking several cars for a test drive. And it would be absolutely foolish to get married without having had sexual intercourse with the individual you're thinking of marrying. How would you find out if you were sexually compatible? Now, we saw in the last segment that John Paul II thinks that's absolute foolishness. Sexual intercourse is an expression of love, and that the best sex is actually going to be between those who deeply love each other rather than those who have some technique or some sort of compatibility physically. What we're seeing, though, is so many people having sex outside of marriage, and then a baby happens, and they find this to be a shock. They were taking precautions, 
or were intending to take precautions or took precautions sometime in the past and thought when they get pregnant, it's a shock. The man was not thinking of marrying the woman. The woman was not thinking of marrying the man. And so they either have a child out of wedlock or they go and get an abortion. Or some of them will get married, but that's a, a small percentage. Again, we have 30% of babies in the United States are born out of wedlock. One out of four to one out of three pregnancies are aborted. That means about 30% of babies that are conceived in the United States are born into an intact household, a bit more than 30%. 30 to 40% of babies are born to a man and a wife. Now, 50% of those unions will end in divorce, also facilitated by the contraceptive pill. So we get about, somewhere they say, approximately 25 to 30% of babies born in the United States will grow to adulthood in an intact household. If you want to know where the problems in our society come from, if you want to know where we get this general lowering of morality, this is a pretty good place to start to look with children who are born out of wedlock and children who are born into households where there is not a husband and a father in the household. This is where you get most of your crime. This is where you get most of your drug abuse or children that come from divorced households. Now, of course, again, let me be cautious and say that I'm not saying that every child that grows up in a single household or grows up from a divorced household is going to be a criminal or given to drug abuse or that children who grow up in intact households are in any way immune or guaranteed not to fall into these patterns. But it's just simply the fact that the studies show that it's more likely the case that children from these households will fall into these kinds of behavior. I think we can start to see the connection that there is between contraception and many of the social problems that we have today. Because most of the social problems that we have today go back to broken households and unwed parenthood. And if contraception is a major contributor to unwed parenthood and to broken households, then it would seem to be that we can trace many of the cultural problems we have today back to contraception. Now, how is it that the church could make the prediction that these things would come to be? What is it that made Pope Paul VI, again, unlike the wisdom of his day and unlike the wisdom of our day, say, you know, contraception isn't this great thing that's going to help marriages, that's going to reduce pregnancy, he said it was going to do all those fourth items that I mentioned that it had done. What made him, what allowed him, what enabled him to see this? Well, as we've been discussing in the earlier sessions, the church has based its teaching on a natural law understanding of marriage, that marriage has two purposes, the purposes of babies and the purposes of bonding, and that those goods of marriage have to be respected. Those goods of sexuality have to be respected. They are respected by engaging in sexual intercourse only during marriage, and in an act of sexual intercourse, is what we're arguing here now, that is open to procreation. I'd like to read two brief passages from Humanae Vitae, a document on contraception. And this is section 11 of Humanae Vitae, a small portion of section 11. It states, the church, which interprets natural law through its unchanging doctrine, reminds men and women that the teachings based on natural law must be obeyed and teaches that it is necessary that each and every conjugal act remain ordained to the procreating of human life. Now here it says that the church bases its teaching on natural law and that the teachings based on natural law must be obeyed and that it's necessary that each and every conjugal act remain ordained to the procreating of human life. Humanae Vitae 12, the next section states, 
The doctrine which the magisterium of the Church has often explicated is this. There is an unbreakable connection between the unitive meaning and the procreative meaning of the conjugal act, and both are inherent in the conjugal act. This connection was established by God and cannot be broken by man through his own volition. Now, what we have here is that the Church is saying that contraception violates not only the procreative meaning, but also the unitive meaning. And this is a very important point, that contraception is understood by the Church not only to violate the baby-making power of the sexual act, but also to violate the bond-making power of the sexual act. Now, this is crucial to our understanding of what the Church teaches. This is based upon an understanding of natural law, much of which we've already covered, and an understanding of personalism. In the first segment, I really talked about the consequences of contraception. I argued that there have been very bad consequences for society when contraception became widely available. Not only for society, of course, but I think for women, and I think for marriages, and therefore I think for children. I'll explain that even more as I go along. Now, I'm not saying that contraception is bad because it has bad consequences. But I am saying that because it's bad, it will have bad consequences. And I would also say that since it's had bad consequences, that gives us a reason to look back and say, well, gee, maybe the church was right. It's been so bad, maybe we didn't understand why the church thought it was wrong. So my argument here isn't a consequentialist argument. My argument isn't that because contraception has bad consequences, it's wrong. But my argument is contraception is wrong and therefore will have bad consequences. Since it has bad consequences, we might look back and see if, in fact, it's wrong. Again, I'll explain in a minute in more detail why it's wrong. But here I'd like to talk about those who have rejected the Church's teaching. Again, the document Humanae Vitae lays forth, again, in a very sketchy way, but a rich way nonetheless, that John Paul II has showed us all the more why it's rich, the teaching of the Church against contraception. The document that was published in 1968, in that same year, Within 24 hours of Humanae Vitae being published, Father Charles Kern from the Catholic University of America held a press conference and proclaimed that the teaching of the Church was based on an inadequate understanding of natural law and that Catholics in good conscience would be permitted to use contraception if their consciences so directed them. Now, he has been followed by the vast majority of moral theologians, both in this country and in the rest of the world. The Church, though, does not decide its teaching on issues by how many theologians believe this or how many believe that. There are also excellent moral theologians, though a small number, who argue that the Church is right. There is Pope John Paul II himself. There is the unbroken tradition of the Church. But perhaps the Church should change its teaching, and this is the reason. I don't believe that, of course, but the reasons why most moral theologians think it should they think the Church's teaching is based on what is known as biologism, or the charge of biologism or physicalism. And this is a claim that the Church is understanding the sexual act as purely a physical act. It's looking only at the biological purpose of the sexual act. They believe that the sexual act has a much grander purpose than just procreation, and that it would be all right to sacrifice the procreative good of the sexual act for the higher personalist goods of marriage, such as union. They make the argument that there's many times that we violate the good of any one of our organs. I may put earplugs in my ears. I may take a medicine that has a bad side effect. I may use crutches or put a cast on my arm. And all these ways we're sort of violating the good of the body for better goods, higher goods. 
And they say, well, we should be able to do the same thing with contraception. We should be able to violate the biological purpose of the genital organs, which they see as reproduction, if we're seeking a higher good. I'd like to say, I think I've demonstrated in the past many segments that the church does not treat the act of sexual intercourse as only for procreation. It's also obviously for union. And even procreation is not simply a physiological act. I mean, this is a very important thing to see, that procreation is not simply a physiological act. It is that union of two persons who come together to produce a third person, right? The sexual acts of cats and dogs are purely physical. There's no emotional bonding. There's no spiritual element. And they do not procreate. They reproduce, right? But human beings procreate. That is, that they bring into existence something that didn't exist before and that will exist forever. So the genital organs of human beings aren't simply ordained to another member of the species, right? They are ordained to a new human being who should be the product of love between a man and a woman who are committed to each other for a lifetime through the act of marriage. So in no way is the church seeing the sexual act as simply a physical act. As a matter of fact, I think the argument can be turned around against the moral theologians who support changing the teaching. Because I think you could say that they're seeing the act as physicalistic. They think it doesn't matter what you do to the physical part of the act. Our body is just kind of a machine. It's not a part of the human person. That you can do whatever you want to to the body as long as you're seeking higher personal human goals. The church wants to say, no, the, the body is not just a physical thing. The body, again, is imbued with spiritual values. And what a human being does with its body is not ever simply a physical act. It's also an act that expresses the full values of the human person. Again, the sexual acts of animals are purely physical. We have no problem sterilizing animals, breeding animals, contracepting animals. So if we thought that you had to respect natural processes, we would say we shouldn't breed animals, we shouldn't contracept animals, we shouldn't sterilize animals because their natural processes lead to an offspring. Or we should say you can do that to human beings because we're just bodies. But the church says we're not just bodies, we're not just animals. Our sexual capacities are very different from those of animals. So while it's all right for animals to contracept and to be sterilized and to breed and to commit adultery, it's not all right for human beings to do so. That's a quick response. I'll make a quick response as well to this question about earplugs, crutches, medicine, etc. All of those actions restore the body to its natural functioning. Earplugs protect my ears so that they don't get hurt. Medicine restores a sick body to its natural conditioning. A cast restores my broken arm to its healthy condition. Very soon I'm going to make a fairly elaborate argument that contraception does not restore the body to a natural condition. It actually puts it in an unnatural condition. It makes a person sick or infertile who is, ought to be fertile. So contraception is very different from earplugs, medicine, casts. All of those bring the body back to a natural functioning, right? Whereas contraception does not. A couple other points on which dissenters reject the church's teaching. One is on what's called the principle of totality. Now the principle of totality is a very important principle in bioethics. This claims that if some part of your body is threatening the whole of your body, it's all right to do some sort of damage to that part of the body that's serving the whole. For instance, if my foot got gangrened, it would be morally permissible to cut off my foot for the sake of the whole of the body. Because 
the foot only exists for the sake of the hole. And if the foot starts to threaten the hole, it would be permissible to remove the foot. Well, dissenters want to apply that principle to the principle of marital acts. And they say it would be all right to violate the procreative meaning of the sexual act if the whole of the marriage were to benefit from it. So as long as the whole of your marriage is ordained to babies, why couldn't you violate the procreative good of a single sexual act? Now, I think the major fallacy in using the analogy in this way, I think this analogy does not apply. Marriage is not like the body, all right? Marriage is not an organic whole. The body is an organic whole. The parts of the body exist for the sake of the whole. But sexual acts are wholes in and of themselves. Sexual acts have their own value, as does any moral act. We don't judge any moral act, really, as the part of a whole. We judge each and every moral act in and of itself. For instance, I couldn't say that because I'm mostly not a racist, that my restaurant is open to different ethnic and racial groups five days out of the week, so why can't I close it two days a week? To them. Most of the time I'm not a racist. Why can't I be a racist some of the time? All right? We wouldn't say that that's permissible. We judge you by your individual acts, not by some conglomeration of acts. And we can maybe see this point best if we were to think about adultery. Again, the church also teaches that each and every sexual act must be only with your spouse. Well, suppose I were to say, well, you know, my marriage could be improved if I could have a few weekends with my boyfriend. Not my husband, but my boyfriend. Or the, a man could say, I could, a few weekends with my secretary would really enhance my marriage, right? I could get a little, little zip in my step, a little zip in my being. My wife doesn't need to know, and why not? For the good of the marriage, it seems to me if I could have a mistress on the side, I could tolerate my wife a whole lot more, and the marriage would last a lot longer. But we would say that's absurd. We would say that each and every act has to be faithful. So when the church says that each and every act has to be procreative, it's not saying that the procreative good can be sacrificed to another good. It's saying that this is a good in and of itself that can't be sacrificed to another good. Again, we're talking here about the principle of totality, that you can sacrifice a good of the part for the sake of the whole. And what the church is saying is that no, sexual acts aren't a part. Sexual acts are a whole in and of themselves. And they have to express the whole reality of the love that you feel for each other and the whole reality of the goods of sexuality not just which ones you want to express at this time, not just what you want to do at this time. This is very similar to their use of the principle of the toleration of the lesser evil, saying that you can tolerate evil as long as you are pursuing a certain good. Now that principle comes largely out of the principle of double effect, which is something that the proportionalists use for their understanding of moral theology as a whole. The principle of double effect says that certain actions have two effects two consequences, and that you can tolerate certain bad effects if they're proportionate to the good effect. For instance, someone who's taking chemotherapy for cancer, that this person might obviously have terrible physiological bad effects. And you say, well, why would you ever do that to someone? We say, well, the good effect that we're seeking, the good effect of the health of this person getting rid of the cancer justifies our tolerating all the bad effects of the chemotherapy. And so, again, they want to say that in contraception, they want to say that in contraception there's only what they would call a premoral, ontic, or physical evil. That this is just a physical evil and not a moral evil. And so you can tolerate the evil of contraception because, again, you have a greater good. You have the greater good of the union of marriage. But the church considers contraception not to be 
simply a premoral, ontic, or physical evil, but considers it to be an intrinsic evil. Again, the church would not say that you can murder in order to gain an inheritance, right? That murdering is evil in itself. And even if you want to get a lot of money from this inheritance and give all that money to the poor, you would say, no, you can't use an evil means to a good end, right? And the church wants to say that contraception is an evil action, bad, wrong. You shouldn't do it. And no matter how much good you might think would come from this act, you shouldn't do it because it's an intrinsic evil. And this is one of the major points of controversy between the proportionalists and traditional moral theologians, is that they think that the evil in contraception is simply a physical evil, a premoral evil, an ontic evil, whereas the church teaches that contraception is an intrinsic evil. I'm going to begin to explain why the church thinks that contraception is an intrinsic evil. Again, earlier I explained that it had bad consequences, but that still doesn't tell us why it's bad. There are several arguments here. I don't know that I'll get through all of these in this segment, but we have future segments to cover these. The first one is that contraception is unnatural. It's a violation of the natural good of fertility. Now, I've talked a little bit about this already, but let me, before I get into how it's a violation against the body, first I do have to make clear that most forms of contraception, the pill, the IUD, Deprovera, and Norplant, pharmaceutical or chemical contraceptives or mechanical contraceptives, operate as abortifacients. That means that they operate by causing a spontaneous early term abortion in the woman. How can you prove that? I say, well, I would just say go to any pharmacist and get the insert that is put in the package of the pill. And you will notice that it tells us that the pill, and this is also true of Norplant and Deprovera, work in three ways. One way is that the pill works as an anovulant, and that means that it stops the body from ovulating. This means that if a woman is not ovulating, that means she's not releasing an egg, and if she releases no egg, she can't get pregnant. That's the way it usually works. The pill almost always works as an anovulant. But they tell us that studies show that two to 10% of the time, in two to 10% of cycles for women, there's what they call breakthrough ovulation. The woman ovulates even though she's been taking the pill. She still might not get pregnant because the pill can change what's called the viscosity of the mucus. Because a woman's body secretes a certain kind of mucus that actually helps the sperm get to the egg. But the pill will make the mucus that she's secreting one that's too slippery, one that doesn't help the sperm get to the egg. So even though she's ovulating, and even though she might be having sexual intercourse while she's ovulating, she may not get pregnant because the sperm cannot get to the egg because of the mucus. There's a third way in which the pill, Norplant, and Deprovera works. And that's by, and these are the words of the insert, it prevents the nidation of the fertilized ovum. This means that, in fact, she has ovulated. And as a matter of fact, the sperm has met the egg. And as a matter of fact, a new little human life has begun. So you have this fertilized ovum trying to work its way down into the uterine wall. Nidation means nesting. It prevents the nidation of the fertilized ovum, meaning that the fertilized ovum tries to implant itself in the uterine wall and cannot do so because the wall is not receptive to the fertilized ovum and sloughs it off. Now, no woman knows how the pill, Norplant, or Deprovera are working in her system. Same with the IUD. She doesn't know which of these mechanisms is being produced by the pill. So 
it could be that several times in her reproductive life, if she's taking the contraceptive pill or using Norplant or using Dayprovera or the IUD, she is, as a matter of fact, causing an early-term abortion. So I would say that any woman who is pro-life and any man who is pro-life would have to be opposed to the pill, IUD, and Norplant and Dayprovera because they cause early-term abortions. As a matter of fact, the pro-choice movement, the pro-abortion movement, makes this argument. They said if you outlaw abortion, you're going to have to outlaw the pill, the IUD, Norplant, and Dayprovera because they can read the evidence as well as we can. But I want to say even when these things work as contraceptives, when they work by preventing the sperm from meeting the egg, they're still incredibly unnatural, that they violate the natural good of fertility. You see, because it's healthy and natural for an adult human being to be fertile. Right? And most of us take pills when we're sick, but there's nothing sick about being fertile. Fertile, again, is a healthy condition. But it actually treats fertility, again, contraception treats fertility as if it's something that needs to be corrected, something that needs to be repressed, something that's, that's bad, except when you want it. And I think mostly it's talking about a woman's fertility. I think that contraception is mostly an insult to a female's body because it's males who can have sex without getting pregnant. And obviously what the pill and other contraceptives do is it helps a woman have sex without getting pregnant. So it makes her think that the male has the better body. As a matter of fact, most contraceptives are incredibly violative of a woman's good. I keep telling environmentalists that they or we, I'm very much of an environmentalist as well, should be absolutely opposed to contraceptives because they are an assault on a woman's ecosystem. A woman has a body that's working very well. Everything is, just like in the outside environment, is well attuned, contributes to the whole. And when she starts putting all these synthetic chemicals into her body, she can well expect that she's going to have a series of bad side effects. There's a book by a woman named Dr. Ellen Grant, a book entitled The Bitter Pill. Dr. Ellen Grant, The Bitter Pill. And in this book, she recounts her own prescription of the pill back in the 1960s. She's a doctor in England, and she said when the pill came on the scene, she thought this would be great. She said, this will be marvelous for women. I'm going to start prescribing it for my patients. And then she saw her patients coming to her with migraines, with cysts, with blood clots, with high blood pressure. And she said, what am I doing? I thought I was helping these women, and here I am, my very own patients. I gave a pill to, and they're coming back sick. And this is what you can see, again, in the insert of any pill. There's some, I think, 35 counterindications, bad side effects from the pill. Stroke, heart disease, increased incidence of some forms of cancer, migraines, again, cysts in the breast, all sorts of things. Now, these were worse in the 60s than now because we've managed to adjust the hormonal balance differently. But they're still bad now. At any given time, 16 million women are using the pill in the United States. And there's going to be a significant number of women who are having these side effects. What Dr. Grant tells us is that when they were first studying the contraceptive pill, they were looking one for both males and one for females. And they discovered in the first male group that there was some slight shrinkage of the male testicles, one man. And they stopped all testing of the male contraceptive pill. There were three women who died in the first group of women taking the pill. Now, these were Puerto Rican women, and I think there's a certain racial and ethnic prejudice here, but it didn't much matter that three women died. And we just simply readjusted the dosage of the contraceptive pill. Now, I think this says something. John Paul II would say this. There's a real insult to a woman's body. It's treating a woman as though she must be available for sex, but the man will not accept, or she will not accept as well, her procreative capacity. Again, as if this were some sort of 
flaw or detriment to her system. Now those are the major bad side effects of the pill, Norplant, Deprevera. I'd like to talk about the lesser ones, such as most women. Most women complain about increased irritability, right? increased propensity to depression, increased weight gain, and a reduced libido, a reduced sex drive. And I always make the joke that I, every woman I know is looking for a pill that will make her more irritable, more depressed, help her gain weight, and reduce her sex drive just so that she can have sex. And every man I know would like the woman he's dealing with to be more irritable, more depressed, to gain weight, and to have a reduced sex drive. There's something ludicrous about the contraceptive pill. Women don't like it. They don't like what it does to their body, but they're willing to accept it because they think they're gaining greater goods. But I say you can expect all these bad side effects from the pill because of the natural law. The body works well. Fertility is a good thing. And we're trying to suppress or repress a good aspect of our body and of our sexuality. We're going against it. We're violating it. And we could expect bad consequences to come from this. I think we should also think for a moment about what are called the barrier methods of contraception. This will come in very much to something we'll talk about later, the unitive meaning of the sexual act. But just think about this word barrier. Here we're talking, of course, about condoms and, and diaphragms, maybe even the IUD. As a barrier, you say, well, here you are. You want to make love, but you want to get your barrier in place. You need to have protected sex, protected against this horrible baby that's trying to come intrude upon your sexual act. Right? There's something negative about contraceptives. There's something negative about a woman's fertility. There's certainly something negative to a possible baby. I think there's something negative about your response to the person with whom you're having sex. I want you, but I don't want your babies. I want to have sexual intercourse with you, but I don't want to have babies with you, which is a very negative response to a person in an act that is meant to be an altogether affirmative act. The sexual act is supposed to say yes to the other person. As John Paul II said, as we discussed last time, that sexual union and love is supposed to be this great big affirmation of another person. I'm glad you exist. I'm glad you're you. I'm glad that I have a part of your life. I'm glad that we are engaging in this sexual act together. But contraception puts a great big no in that picture, a great big no. It says, I don't want something that belongs in this act. I don't want a part of you. I don't want your fertility. I don't want to have babies with you. There's something extremely negative unloving about contraception. I'll get into that more as we go along. I'll talk about how it violates the procreative meaning and the unitive meaning. But first, I just wanted to do this presentation on how it's bad for a woman's body. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.